We are grateful that you are here this morning. It is always wonderful to be together, even when the weather doesn't quite cooperate like we wish it would. It's not as beautiful of a day as it's been the last few Sundays and certainly the last few weeks, but we're grateful for the opportunity to be together. It's what is taking place here for us and amongst us as we worship God together, and we're thankful for the opportunity to do that as Christians and joining in our worship to God. appreciate uh, one of my best friends here, Gabe, leading and even his f- feeling the need to apologize slightly for taking a little bit of the time up. Uh, he wasn't with us last week. Of course, he works uh, every other Sunday and is often not able to be here but catches up. But I, I did open the door uh, to the Lord's Supper thoughts going a little bit longer as we talked about the idea that that is one of the most important things that we do as we come together. It's not so much worrying about the sermon or even sometimes the singing or the prayers or, or any one particular thing, but in the general sense, we think about all the things that we do, including with that, why we take the Lord's Supper and why we do it each first day of the week. You know, it's interesting that oftentimes in life we have a why, why we do certain things. We don't often think about it. Why do you eat supper every night? Well, it's because you have to have food to keep going. You don't think about that usually. You just kind of do it. But, but there's a why. Why do we get up in the morning? Why do we go to work? There's a why for just about everything that we do in this life. But what we began to notice last week was that oftentimes we don't think about why we do things when it comes to our spirituality or our religious service per se. And we said that a year ago we talked about a series of lessons of why it is that we do and practice and believe certain things in regards to salvation or baptism. We even talked about why it is that we believe that hell is real and that it is eternal. By the same connection, we began last week to take a look at a few things, a series of lessons, why it is that we believe and practice and do certain things Not necessarily about salvation, but more specifically in regards to our periods of worship together. You see, you know the fact that over the last few months, our time of worship has become a little more precious to us. We didn't have it for a good while, at least in a collective sense, and so we began to think about those things. And so I thought it was a a perfect time in one way to think about those things and, and to think about our worship. But it also helps us to ground ourselves. We said last week from Matthew chapter 7 when Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount there that it's not just the people who claim, Lord, Lord, who say, Lord, Lord, that will enter the kingdom of heaven, but those who do the will of my Father. We're seeking to do the will of the Father. So it would benefit us then to think about some of the things that the Bible has to say, especially in regards to our worship. When we covered this series about a year ago, and even as we talked last week, we thought about why it is that we do certain things. But also a year ago, at least one of those lessons we talked about, it's beneficial for us to consider why we don't do certain things. And as you know, when we go around not only the Saudi Daisy area, but Tennessee and even around the world, there's lots of confusion when it comes to religious matters, spiritual matters, and even what we do in our worship to God. And so this morning, we want to consider for just a a few moments this idea of tithing. If you've got your notes in front of you there from the bulletin, we have said that that we want to talk about why we don't believe in tithing. Now, most of you are probably going to be familiar with that term. Uh, Some of our younger people may not, as maybe it's not a term that is used as often. But some people still talk about tithing and why they tithe and how much they tithe and that kind of thing. 
The word tithing, essentially used in the Old Testament, and we're going to get to the Old Testament in just a moment, deals with the idea of a tenth. So when we think about tithing, we might look at it this way, that if you make $3,750.20 a month and you want to take a tenth or 10% of that, that's $375.02, and you divide that by four and you get $93.75, and that's how much you should give each week. Assuming that there's typically, you know, four Sundays, four first days of the week in a month. But then some people say, well, that doesn't sound right. You know, I've got to pay my bills. So maybe it's that I make that much money, but I've got to pay $2,015.75 in bills. So that leaves me with $1,734.45. I take 10% of that. I get $173.44. I divide that by four Sundays, and my contribution weekly is $43.36. And as I've just had a lot to say there, many people then look at that and they scratch their head and say, well, that's awful confusing. Is it supposed to be before taxes or after taxes? Is it supposed to be before bills or after bills? What is this 10% and how does it work and and why am I supposed to give that? And at what point am I supposed to calculate that out and, and give that? The question marks on the screen is oftentimes what we have sometimes when we examine what the world tends to do when it comes to religious practices or even worship practices. Does it really have to be that hard? Is that what God intended when he talks about either tithing or as we're going to see the idea of giving this morning? Is it meant to be that confusing? Do we need to sit down and really do that much figuring out to understand what it is that we are supposed to do in our period of worship to God? It's an interesting thought. Let's think first of all about what the Old Testament has to say. When we think about doing what we do and why it is that we do it, we want to go to the Bible. And so when we think about tithing, it it would help us to think about what the Old Testament has to say. One of the greatest examples that people often use, there are two that we're going to look at very briefly. One is Abraham. In Genesis chapter 14 and verse number 20, we see that Abraham is interacting with Melchizedek. And so it says in verse number 18 that then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he, that's Melchizedek, blessed him, Abram. He's not Abraham yet, but Abram here. And said, blessed be Abram of God most high, professor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And if you're looking at the passage there, you would notice that then he, that would be Abram, gave him to Melchizedek a tithe of all. Now, if your Bible's like mine, there may be a reference to a middle section or some notes at the bottom that says the idea of a tenth. Abraham gives a tenth to Melchizedek. But let's go a little bit further. In the Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 7... The Hebrews writer talks about this particular instance again, but it's interesting for us to notice as we consider this idea of tithing what the Hebrew writer has to say. He says, now consider how great this man was, talking about Melchizedek, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. Now, again, you may have a note in your Bible there that goes over into the middle and says something different. Mine says plunder. We don't have time to look in great detail, but back in Genesis chapter 18, we notice that Abraham doesn't give a tenth of his income to God, but he's giving a tenth of some spoils or plunder that he had just taken in battle in war to Melchizedek. So we're not going to stand here this morning and say, well, you know, the Bible says it doesn't say anything about tithing because we notice there that it does, but it's interesting to consider what is being said there. Let's go forward. Not only Abraham, but Jacob in Genesis chapter 28. 
You'll recall the particular instance there. Jacob is, we've already met Jacob, of course, but, and he's already escaped from his brother Esau. But in verse number 10, he makes a vow at Bethel. And this is a dream that he has on one particular night. He pillows his head, so to speak, and then he has a dream, one that you're familiar with because we get our term Jacob's Ladder from, that, from this particular story. He has this dream in verse number 12, And behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven, and there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And we go over to verse number 22 after some interaction and discussion there. Jacob says, And this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house, and of all that you give me I will surely give a tenth to you. There we see that word again, this idea of a tithe or a tenth. So it's there in the Old Testament. But let's consider a few other things. Notice, if you would, that there's a little more than that. We can't simply say that those guys gave a tenth and we need to give a tenth here in 2020 or today. Let's notice a couple of other things about this. Maybe we might even call them some misconceptions that people have when it comes to this idea of tithing. Number one, when we think about tithing in the Old Testament, I would say, well, first of all, maybe 1A, we looked at what Abram did and it wasn't giving his income to God, it was giving a tenth of his spoils to Melchizedek in a sense. 1B might be the fact that when we see tithing in the Old Testament, it's mainly food and never usually in a sense income or money. Leviticus chapter 27, if you're making notes you might jot that down, Leviticus 27 verses 30 through 32 is one of the other passages that people mainly turn to when they think about tithing. There it says, And all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is a holy to the Lord. And even down in verse 32, And concerning the tithe of the herd or the flock, of whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. So we see that number or idea of ten or tenth again. We see in the Old Testament that it's not necessarily this direct income and it's change or money given back, but it's oftentimes food. And that's kind of interesting because many people don't think about that when they think about tithing or what it is that we're supposed to do. Notice, secondly, that oftentimes the Israelites were going to be giving more than required. You see, we're not going to necessarily argue that a tenth or a tithe was never in play in some way. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 10 discusses the idea of robbing God and robbing God in tithes. So it seems that a tithe was at least a bit of a minimum. But at the same time, when you read about what they were doing in the Old Testament, in the Old Law, they were oftentimes offering sacrifices. They were oftentimes offering free will sacrifices. And all of that would have been on top of this tithe or tenth of their, the fruit of the tree or the seed of the ground. So it's interesting, and of course we're going to get to this in just a few moments when we really hone in on what we're supposed to be doing, but the tithe was not the only amount or the maximum amount or the exact amount, but oftentimes in the Old Testament they were going to be giving more than just that tithe or tenth. Interesting, because oftentimes when people think about tithing, there's a lot of misconception. Now it's true that we don't live under the old law. That's just a fact, all right? We're not going to argue that necessarily this morning or go through that. I'm afraid if we're not careful sometimes, though, that we often will say we don't live under the old law, so we don't tithe, and that's it, instead of thinking about the principles that go along with that. But it's true. We don't live under the old law. We don't offer sacrifices because some people would say you have to tithe. 
Because the Old Testament says you must tithe. But then they don't offer sacrifices, right, like they do in the Old Testament. Now, that's one kind of shaky ground that sometimes people get on. But it's true. We don't live under the old law. So what does the New Testament say? I'd like to suggest to you five things this morning. I'm I bar, borrowing them from Brother Wayne Jackson and some of his thoughts. But I thought it really sums up what we're thinking about when it comes to the principle of giving as opposed to tithing. Number one, we see in the New Testament that there is regular giving. Now the passage, and you can jot this down to the side, is 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse number 2. 1 Corinthians 16 and verse number 2. This is a place we often turn to and it's often read as we think about our offering or our giving uh, as we do that in our particular service. I'd like to share with you our brother Hugo McCord's translation. I don't know if any of you have ever had a chance to look at that or read through that. But one of our brothers in Christ, Brother Hugo McCord, had a translation of the New Testament. And it reads 1 Corinthians 16, 2 in this way. Every Sunday, let each one of you lay aside by himself, if he earns anything, and put it in the treasury, so that there will be no collections when I come. If you were with us last week, we actually talked about this verse. And we put it up on the screen, and we put the Greek up there, and we talked about different versions last week, if you remember that, if you were with us. But we said that really the translation from the Greek language that is there in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse number 2 is the idea of each first day of the week. And so our giving is to be regular in a sense. It is mandated in a weekly act of our worship. We're not going to have time to get into that particular branch of this lesson a whole lot this morning. But it is. It is supposed to be regular each first day of the week. We talked about that last week when it came to partaking of the Lord's Supper. We're talking about it this week when it comes to our giving. You see the importance of meeting each first day of the week. I've been thinking about a lesson along those lines as we have had this period where we were not having worship together here in the building and now we're coming back and, and some people are still unsure about it. I, I've considered wanting to, to preach a lesson on that idea of the first day of the week, each first day of the week. But we've already touched on it a little bit here. This is what they were doing. This is what they were told to do. So we see, first of all, that our giving should be regular. Number two, it is to be proportional. Proportional giving. Giving is required according to one's ability. Acts chapter 11 in verse number 29. Acts eleven twenty nine. We see this idea that those disciples were giving as they had the ability to support some relief work. They're giving and that work, that money is going to be taken and given to some others who are in need of it. But they don't just give everything. They don't just give a tenth. They give as they have the ability to. If you have your Bible, look with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to be in chapter, chapters 8 and 9 for a few moments here as we go through this particular part of our lesson. But notice in chapter 8 and verse number 12, Paul would say, For if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has, and not according to what he does not have. My father-in-law is fond of saying that God's only going to expect of us what we can do, what we can give. He's not saying that the minimum level has to be $5,000 a month or a week or whatever. It's according to what we have. So it's somewhat proportional, we might say. Those who earn more are required to give more, all other factors being equal. One person's prosperity 
helps compensate for another's lack. Because here's the interesting part. There may be a time when you're the one who lacks and someone else then has the prosperity. So when we think about our giving being proportional to what we have, that oftentimes back, uh, is given in a sense of equality. If you're there in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 still, look beginning at verse number 14. Paul says, But by an equality that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack, that their abundance also may supply your lack, that there may be equality. Sometimes we think we're on top of the heap and we're never coming down. We may think we're at the bottom and we're never going to get to the top. But many of us can attest to the fact that it does, we don't stay in one place in our lives. And so if we give proportionally according to as we have been blessed, as according to what we have, then in a sense it's all going to balance out. There's a sense of equality. Because there may come a time when we are in need after we've been the one to have what we need. Number three. We think about generous giving. The Christian giver is one who donates of his income in a generous fashion. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse number 11. While you are, Paul says, enriched in everything for all liberality which causes thanksgiving through us to God. The Christian giver is one who donates out of his income in a generous fashion. And I would submit to you, that this is sort of at the heart of where we began when we think about why we don't believe in tithing. If we give only 10% or we're hitting that number and that number only, then we're not thinking about giving in a generous fashion. The Philippian saints were those who were so gracious that they even gave beyond their ability. If you're still there in 2 Corinthians, that's at the beginning of chapter 8. Paul speaks of those from the Macedonia area the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, verse 2, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. Verse 3 says, For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing. Notice verse 4 says, Imploring us, with much urgency. It seems as if Paul and his associates are trying to refuse. No, no, we can't do this. We can't take this. But they are begging them to accept their gift. These Philippian saints were not necessarily rich in the, num- the amount of money they had, but they are giving beyond their ability. Can that be said about us and our giving? What does the New Testament say? Well, it paints a picture of Christians being generous givers. Number four, there's directed giving that's talked about in the New Testament. While it is certainly the case that a person here, any of you, myself included, we can give to different causes. We can give directly to various good causes to the glory of God as those opportunities present themselves. We might see a need to to give money to one particular um, association or one particular group. I might decide to give out of my own pockets to to a particular children's home, as we've already talked about this morning or something, of my own. I might have an opportunity to do that. But it is likewise a fact that one is obliged to give each Lord's Day into the treasury of the congregation of which he is a member. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse number 2. We don't often focus on that particular part, but it's said there, that we give into the treasury of the local congregation of which we are a member of. 
Without this consistency, the local congregation cannot conduct the sacred business to which it is obligated. The elders are not able to do certain things. They're not able to keep the lights on, maybe, but they're also not able to support other missionaries who are going out and doing good things. They're not able to support members of the congregation. We're going to come to that in just a moment. While it's true that we may give to many different things in our lifetime, we see directed giving as well. We give into the treasury so that the congregation can do certain things that the elders can make decisions as they are taking care of that money. And then fifth and finally, according to these particular principles, there is exuberant giving. The joy of giving, think about this, the joy of giving is not developed accidentally. The joy of giving is not developed accidentally. Oftentimes our children are very selfish, are they not? We have to work at them sharing and giving of their things. And while that's sort of frustrating to us and it's kind of hard, but that's the way we are naturally. By the way, that's oftentimes adults are as well. They learn about sharing and giving, but then we sort of revert back to this when it comes to the dog-eat-dog world that we live in or our job, that we should have all that we can get and we should do above and beyond our effort to, give as, to get as much for ourselves. From multiple sources, we are negatively influenced with the me-first doctrine. And so that's why the Bible talks about supporting others, giving to others. It is a learned ability when we think about giving. But how thrilling it is then when one person, when we, after considerable study and training, begin to realize how much happiness, how much happiness comes when we give to others. How much Happiness is generated within our heart when we give to those around us. Not only in a directed sense to the local congregation, but even to others that we come in contact with. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 35, the Apostle Paul quotes Jesus. Jesus said that those who are on the giving end of the equation are happier than those on the receiving end. Have you ever felt that way before? It does your heart good to give something to someone. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse number 7, we know that God loves the person who has mastered the art of cheerful giving, exuberant giving. The conscientious Bible student is going to be aware of that, studying and learning and understanding this idea that it is more blessed to give than to receive. And our giving needs to be in an exuberant sense as well. Five principles there for us to consider about our giving. But let's, let's go a little bit further here as we begin to conclude our lesson. What is the purpose of the collection? What is the purpose of our giving? When we stop and do that, even as we did here, and I appreciate Gabe, of course, mentioning as we've tried, we're not able to pass the baskets as we once did. So it's not in the same way. But what is the purpose of that? Why do we even stop and acknowledge it? Why is there a basket there on the table? You know, it's something that came up during this time of a pandemic. Our elders put out a note and they wanted you to know that, that we would still like for you to be able to give as you have always given. Directly, generously, exuberantly, proportionally, all these things that we've talked about. But what is the purpose of the collection? And as we consider these five principles that we just looked at, let's look at a couple of things that it's not. As we did with the Old Testament just a few moments ago. Is it just a way to pay the bills? Is that the purpose of the collection? A mere mechanical detail, if you will. It, we don't like it, and it's really kind of uncomfortable having to pass those baskets and having to, to ask people to give money. It intrudes, some people would say. It intrudes on our spiritual service. 
I mean, we're here to pray and sing. Why do we have to pass that basket? Is it only a way to pay the bills? So people oftentimes think, well, just hurry up and pass the plate. Let's just kind of get this part over with so that we can move on to the more spiritual part of our worship. I mean, we want to keep the lights on. We certainly know that we have to have air conditioning. We want to keep the AC going. So is it simply a way to pay the bills? I would suggest to you it's not. Number two, though, is it just a private matter between one and their God? Some people consider it a private act. Well, it's just between me and God. Nobody needs to see my check. It's nobody else's business what's going on or what's happening with me. And let me say this. I'm not going to suggest this morning that we start advertising everybody's checks or, or that we start watching and keeping a camera and you have to hold up how much money you're going to give. I'm not suggesting anything like that. But, in a sense, it is a private matter. But, when we really consider the Word of God, as we've tried to do this morning, when we really think about these principles that we've already talked about, maybe what we're trying to get at is that the biblical view of the collection shows that it is to be a means of building and strengthening fellowship. Again, I'm not going to suggest that we begin to count what each person puts in or that you have to share that in a public sense. But at the same time, when we read in the Bible and we think about New Testament passages and the giving, there is a sense that the collection, the taking up of the collection, is a means of building and strengthening our fellowship. This is how Paul viewed it. Philippians chapter 1 and verse number 5. Philippians 1, 5. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. We already talked just a moment ago about from 2 Corinthians chapter 8 that he's talking about their giving, what they were able to give. So he's saying that it is a fellowship in a sense. We are sharing in these things. Not only is it just how Paul thought about this in particular, but the early church. In Acts chapter 4 and verse number 32, Acts 4.32, when we read what the, the early church was doing, when they are sharing of their blessings, when they are willing to give, the Bible says they are of one heart and one mind or one soul. One heart, one soul. That's what we strive to be so much today. We want to be in fellowship so united as a light shining into the world. They are of one heart and one soul when they are sharing and giving of their means. Having this fellowship together. Is that the way we consider our offering and our giving from week to week? When we think about the New Testament, three things very quickly that's not, that are not in your notes, but we think about that as a means of strengthening fellowship, our offering is, number one, a way for Christians to supply the need of the destitute. To supply the need of the destitute. We've been talking about the church on Wednesday nights in our Bible class here in the auditorium. And one of the things that the church can do is it can help meet the needs of those who are less fortunate. We might say those who are destitute, who are doing without. So when we think about our offering, our giving being a means of strengthening our fellowship, the collection is a way for Christians to supply the needs of the destitute. We see it on the pages of the New Testament. Number two, it's a way for Christians to supply the means of supporting preaching brethren or preachers. Again, we see this in the New Testament. I'm not just saying that because I'm a preacher, but we see that on the pages of the New Testament. Some people would argue, you cannot pay a preacher, you cannot pay a localized preacher to be with a congregation. But we do see Paul being supported by people. They offer him of their money to go and be preaching. And not just him, but others. 
And so we see that this is a way, the means of collection, are giving by means of fellowship, being one heart, one soul, is that we can together support preaching brethren. But then number three, it's a way for Christians to supply the needs of each other. We focus so much sometimes on the destitute or less fortunate. We focus some, so much sometimes on preachers or preaching brethren or missionaries. But it supplies us an opportunity to meet the needs of each other. Strengthen our fellowship together. Very often, you know nothing about that. Our elders do a good job of being open. They share the budget, where our money is going, and that kind of thing. But very often, you may have no idea... Because it's a bit of a private matter and someone doesn't want others to know maybe how much they're struggling or what's going on from time to time. But you may not know how often you support our brothers and sisters with your giving. But it's a way for us to supply the needs of each other. We have fellowship in that. We're built up and strengthened. So am I saying that maybe we should start a parade and each one announce how much we're giving? No. But if we simply say that it is a private matter only between me and God, then we're forgetting about the idea of fellowship. And strengthening one another. The idea that our giving supports not only helping those who are less fortunate and those who are doing the work of the Lord and going around and preaching, but even members of our own congregation. Even in our giving, we should not be isolated worshipers. We come in here, especially during social distancing time, we keep our distance, we sit in our pew, and we worship all alone. It's not meant to be that way whether it is in our singing, which is the one thing we do as a group, or whether it is in our partaking of the Lord's Supper, or our offering or our giving. Even in our giving, we are not meant to be isolated worshipers. It's hard. It's hard the way we do it. I've told you before, sometimes we'd be better suited to sit in a circle and face each other, but we couldn't get as many people in here if we did it that way. But that's what our worship is meant to be, together to God. But oftentimes giving is relegated to the end, and it's just something that we do in isolation. So here's the difference. When we think about tithing, and we think about the Old Testament, tithing was commanded by the law. We see that in the Old Testament, the passages we looked at, Leviticus, uh, there at the end of Leviticus, and the things that we've mentioned. Tithing was commanded by the law. Okay, we understand that. Why don't we believe in tithing? Well, it's because in the New Testament, giving is voluntary from the heart. We've already looked at five principles, and that goes into more detail in what we're saying here. But giving is voluntary from the heart. So, as, of course, Gabe mentioned for us, many of us have already participated in the giving. Some of you may have an opportunity to as you leave here in just a moment. But considering we've already done that maybe here today, I will ask you to consider these things going forward. Not only these five principles that we discussed, but even this particular summation. Is your giving voluntary? Is it from the heart? And is it those other things that we've already talked about? You see, the title of the lesson, of course, was meant to be a bit of an eye-catcher. It's something to grab our attention. But instead of saying why we don't believe in tithing, of course, we could have also said, and changing our thought process, why we believe in giving. And it being a part of our worship, something that we do together. I hope that you'll take these lessons and you'll be challenged, not offended, not hurt, but challenged going forward to think about what it is you do when you, first of all, partake of the Lord's Supper each first day of the week. But second of all, when you give. And God be willing, the next week or two we'll come back and we'll talk about 
a few more things. As you're putting your uh, Bibles up and notes up and you're getting your psalm books out, if you choose to use one, we're going to extend the Lord's invitation here in just a moment. The possibility exists that there's someone here this morning wouldn't necessarily be connected to the lesson and the idea of giving, but maybe you've considered your life, whether it's through the songs that we've sung or the partaking of the Lord's Supper or the beautiful prayer that our brother Bob worded for us. You've thought about your life and your relationship to God. And maybe you don't have a relationship. You've never become a Christian. We'll be singing to encourage you that you would obey God's simple plan of salvation, putting on Christ in baptism, as Gabe did such a wonderful job of causing us to think about that precious blood that we come in contact with that washes away our sins. We can arise to walk in newness of life. The Lord will add us to His church. It's a great and wonderful decision, the most important one in all of this earthly world. But maybe most of you here this morning have done that, and you've struggled to remain faithful. Maybe it's a problem with your giving. You recognize that. Maybe it's a problem with something else in your life. Maybe there's a particular sin that's separated you from God. Maybe you're here this morning, and you're just struggling. You want the prayers of the congregation. We come together to give. Together, We come together to partake the Lord's Supper together, to worship together, but also to pray with and for one another. And as we are here as a family, as a body fellowshipping, then we would love the opportunity to pray with you and to pray for you if there's something in your life that is amiss. We'll be singing to encourage you as we stand together and as we sing.